All right. Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see you. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and you guys, we've got a great morning planned for you. We're going to get into the scriptures in just a minute. But if you're new here, we're all about following after Jesus. That's who we are. I'm seeing some, some familiar faces. John and Karen, it's fantastic to have you back after about a year and a half in COVID. John and Karen are here, you guys. That's a good thing. Put your hands together for that. Also, my mom and dad, my mom and dad um, have, some, have had some heart issues in the past, and so they were in quarantine for a whole year and a half, too, and they're here for like the second time, so that's fantastic. Hey, mom and dad. Hey, um, I don't know if you can tell this by looking at me, but I'm not really like a flower arrangement guy, but yesterday we had this wedding uh, at the church, and it was beautiful, it was amazing, and uh, they, had, they like had this cross specially built, and then they had this really kind of rad flower arrangement. So I was like, yeah, let's leave it up for Sunday. So anyways, that's why that's there. Um, but anyways, you guys, um, we are going to get into a teaching from the scriptures. So will you please stand with me? Uh, and we're going to go through the word of God together. So stand up for the reading of scripture. This is week two of our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take it nice and slow over the next 23 or so weeks. And we're just going to try and digest everything that Jesus has for us from the sermon. Okay, so um, Matthew chapter 5 is starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's the word of the Lord. Jesus, we just want to say that we love you and we thank you so much for this time that we have together to study the word of God. And we're really desperate, we're really longing, we're really excited to hear from you today. So we just ask, like we do often, that you would be the one who speaks. We pray that you would speak into our lives. We pray that you would change us, that we would be formed to become more like you, Jesus. And we pray that you would give us your vision for the good life for what it actually means to walk in the promise of the scripture. And we pray all of these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, go ahead and find your seat. All right, the, the passage that we just read, I believe, is the key to unlocking the wisdom of Jesus' teaching. Let me say that again. The passage we just read, I believe, is the key to unlocking the wisdom of Jesus' teaching. And it's about way more than just instructions for a positive outlook on life. Jesus has a much bigger agenda at hand. And here's what I mean by that. The Bible portrays Jesus as, of course, the Lord and the Savior of the world. That's what we were just singing. And another way of saying that is that Jesus is the true King. Or in the language of Isaiah, he is the king of kings. So if you follow Jesus, what that means is that you're saying yes to him as king. You're saying yes to his vision. You're saying, yes, he is the true king, the one who reigns over all the earth, and I am loyal to him, and I follow him. And in America, we don't really understand monarchy. Despite the fact that we might binge the crown or read all of the salacious UK press, or despite the fact that we may like have watched that infamous Oprah video with Meghan and Harry, right? Is that the right names? Okay, case in point, we don't know a whole lot about monarchy, but in ancient Greco-Roman culture and in ancient Hebrew culture, they did. And we know from history that in that cultural context, the king was, quote, the living law, the living law. This is something we find throughout history. So the king uh, was supposed to epitomize virtue and wisdom. So whatever is good and right, the idea is that the king will embody and actually legislate in his kingdom. So the hope was that the king will deal with injustice and destroy our enemies and everything that's a threat to our empire. He will care for the poor and he will set up our society to, pro to prosper and to thrive in every way. So peace and prosperity will spread throughout our borders because our king knows what is right and he has the virtuous character to carry it out or to bring it to our society. Except that didn't really happen, right? Because kings and leaders are just as flawed, if not more, than any other human. But, like we talked about last week, in the background of the Sermon on the Mount, there is this hope-filled anticipation that's building around Jesus because he is announcing good news, the kingdom of heaven is now here, and he's already proven, and this is really key, through the early chapters of Matthew, he's already proven to have authority 
over spiritual darkness, over physical evil, things like blindness and lameness and all of that. And he also has a victory over sin. So in other words, to put it succinctly, the Gospels are portraying Jesus as the true, virtuous, and wise king. That's what the scriptures are sort of carefully trying to depict Jesus at. And so, in other words, he's worthy of listening to and obeying. And as he sits down to teach, the key to understanding his message is to know his purpose. So he, if he truly is the wise and virtuous king, then he has a lot that we need to pay attention to and listen to. And the key to understanding this passage, because it's so dense and so thick, we need to understand his purpose or his why. And from all of my study and research from scholars who are way more qualified than I am and smarter than I am, and through prayer and meditation on the sermon, I believe that the purpose of Jesus' message is to give us a guide to flourishing in the kingdom of God. His purpose is to give us a guide to flourishing in the kingdom of God. Let me explain what I mean. Jonathan Pennington, in his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, writes this. The sermon is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness? What is blessedness? What is shalom? And how does one obtain it and sustain it? So this is... um, According to Pennington, is like our basic human longing in life. How do I experience the good life? Is it the right combination of the mountains and the river and good coffee and good beer? What is it? What is the combination that wherein, wherein we experience the good life? And in the sermon, Jesus is offering his viewpoint on that. He's offering his worldview, he's, his response to that question, and then his guide to experience the good life, which I'm going to share with you. But first, we have to be really honest and aware that we are being influenced by our culture. Our culture is a, uh, is a machine uh, in, in a way that it influences us day in, day out. So the Western world has answered this question um, that in a way that sort of rivals or competes with the kingdom of God. You see what I'm saying? When we talk about the good life, Jesus is portraying his vision, and he clearly does that here in the sermon. But we have also been influenced by our culture, which answers that question in a very different way. In fact, there's many. There's the shoot for the stars answer. That's one vision of the good life in the Western world. There's the you do you answer. That's another uh, way that we answer that in, in the Western world. There's also the Christian nationalism answer. There's also the social justice warrior answer and many, many, many others. Now, we don't really have time for a robust philosophical conversation and quite frankly, I'm not the right person for that. But let me just tell you a story. So um, I grew up uh, in the 90s in the suburbs of Portland and, my parent, and I grew up going to church and my parents did a great job And my church did a good job, too, showing me who Jesus is. But if I'm being perfectly honest, I was formed by a competing vision of the good life. And that's um, in part because I grew up, and when I was growing up, I was a competitive swimmer, which means, I've told you guys this before, which means that I spent most of my childhood in a green Speedo, (laughs) which is uncomfortable for me to admit to you. But when I think about it, it's actually been good preparation for a life of public speaking. Because as you know, many people have a fear of public speaking. Maybe you have a fear of public speaking, and I do too. But when you spend most of your childhood in crowds of people in nothing but a green Speedo, you get used to feeling uncomfortable. So I've got that fear of public speaking just like you do. But when I start feeling uncomfortable, I just think to myself, at least I'm fully clothed. That's, that's great. This is great. So anyways. My coaches, uh, they taught me a narrative about being fulfilled in life. And essentially the narrative went like this. Shoot for the stars. Set the biggest possible goal that you can possibly imagine and aim for that. And then go ahead and set like a hundred smaller goals that are all pointed in that same direction. And and those smaller hundred goals will lead you to that ultimate goal. And then climb that mountain every day. And eventually, you will make it to the top of that mountain. And all along the journey, but especially when you arrive at the summit, you'll be satisfied. You'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. Does that sound familiar? That's a very, very popular 
way of interpreting the good life in the Western world. But maybe you don't relate to that. Maybe you relate more to the you-do-you narrative or the Christian nationalism narrative, which we're not going to take time to discuss today. But the problem for me with that shoot-for-the-stars narrative was that it just didn't work. It just didn't work. I I was uh, very driven, very goal-oriented, so it wasn't actually difficult for me to set those goals and even to hit those goals. But it wasn't satisfying for more than like 10 seconds to stand on, on the top of some podium or to meet a goal. And what I found was the further you get up that mountain towards that ultimate goal, the more disillusioning it becomes because you're getting closer and closer. And the whole reason that you've been working so hard and sacrificing so much is failing to deliver on its promise. So the further get you get up, the actually more empty it becomes. And so by the, by the age of 17, I was already just sort of a mess, an angry, frustrated, like confused mess. Now, I'm not saying don't have goals. That's super important that we hear that. In fact, I'm probably more goal-oriented now than I've ever been. But I am saying you can't experience the good life by shooting for the stars alone. You just can't. The true human flourishing is only available through communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's only available through deep, faithful, whole-person discipleship to Jesus in community with the people of Jesus, and it will only be fully realized in the new creation. So just to cover what we've, just to recap what we've done so far, Jesus is the wise, virtuous king. And the the key to unlocking the wisdom of his teaching is to understand his purpose. And his purpose is to give us a guide to human flourishing in the kingdom of God. And that means that we have to be open to putting our cultural ideas aside and putting aside our quasi-Christian ideas that we, we have to be willing to put those on the chopping block in order to actually follow Jesus. So you guys tracking with me so far? Is that making sense? Awesome. Okay. Now... Welcome to the Beatitudes. That was our long-winded intro. Welcome to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the opening line of Jesus' sermon, and it is so Jesus. It is so Jesus. A crowd assembled, waiting on bated breath to hear Jesus' grand vision for the kingdom of God breaking in on the earth. And his first sentence is, just like Jesus often is, dripping with irony and paradox. And it's right side up from everything that we've ever heard about life in the kingdom of God. The good life is being poor in spirit. What? It's so, again, backwards, but probably right side up from everything that we've ever heard. So before we can even really wrap our heads around that, though, we need to understand the word translated bless. So today is a lot of sort of history and background into the words, and I promise there's payoff to all of it, but hang with me. So this word blessed, scholars agree that the whole thing, the whole sermon hangs on this word blessed uh, that's at the beginning of this teaching uh, nine different times. So it's the Greek word makarios. It's a Greek word, makarios, and it's translated blessed, as you know, but it can also be translated joyful or happy or maybe even better, flourishing. So flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. So these, these poems, as I'm sure, or these uh, uh, beatitudes, as I'm sure you've uh, picked up on, they have this sort of poetic and proverb-like quality to them, and Jesus is serving them up in this very memorable way. And of course, that's on purpose. We're going to get more into that as we go along. But there's more to it than just that. As I'm sure you can imagine, Jesus' message is deeply rooted in the story of the Bible. It's deeply rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, it, which, is, of course, was the Bible of his day. So the Bible of Jesus' day was called the Septuagint. Are you guys familiar with this concept? The Bible of, the, of Jesus' day is called the Septuagint. And um, you know how our Bibles are translated from Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and into English? Well, in the first century, um, that's, what, um, that's what they were doing as well. They were translating the scriptures. Um, they're translating the scriptures from Hebrew, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures of the day, and they're translating them into not English but Greek. So in the first century, what we call the Old Testament was being carried around by the Jewish people at the time, and it was translated into English. So, um, by the way, 
for the last hundred or so years, people have been um, calling into question the credibility of the scriptures because it's been translated so many times from Hebrew and Greek into English. The truth of the matter is, is that the Bible is actually super, super reliable. So um, our translation of the Bible is in English from Hebrew and Greek, but theirs was Hebrew into Greek. So often uh, when, when Jesus is using a Greek word, it's super helpful uh, to look to see how that word is used in the Septuagint. So um, makarios is used in the Septuagint a lot as well. So makarios is used about 40 or so times, all in Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah. And it's used as a translation of the Hebrew word asher, asher, kind of like usher, but not, you know, kind of close to it, uh, asher. And here's some examples of where it's used or how it's used in the canon of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. Psalm chapter one and verse one says this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the, with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Okay, awesome. Okay, so essentially what is being said here is happy or flourishing or blessed is the person who takes pleasure in God's commands. The people who listen and obey God's commands and live whole flourishing lives. The next one is in Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. Blessed or assure or makarios are all who take refuge in him. So happy is the person who seeks God's protection. Blessed is the one who runs to God in a moment of need. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. Blessed are those who find wisdom. And those who gain understanding. So happy or flourishing or blessed is the person who lives wisely. Again, the focus of this word is about gaining knowledge about God's way of living and God's vision for the good life. And they are rewarded because of their seeking after wisdom. And this is so critically important. Typically, we're not seen as a wisdom culture, but we need to become one. We need to be a kind of people who seek after the wisdom from God. Okay, one more example of how this word assure or makarios is used in the Septuagint. Isaiah chapter 30. We're going to be talking a lot over the course of these next couple of months about the connection between the Sermon on the Mount and Isaiah. Because Jesus quotes Isaiah probably 20 to 30 times in the sermon alone. So there's this intense Isaiah connection. Okay, this is what Isaiah 30 says. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. This is what God is like, essentially. This is what he wants. He longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. That message will preach. We need that right now. And then here's that word. Blessed are all who wait for him. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. Your eyes will be open and you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. This is an awesome scripture. This is so good. And there's so many parallels to the sermon here. He's saying, happy is the person who in the midst of suffering... In the midst of affliction, trust in the promise of God's future salvation. Trust in the promise that what God said he will do, he will in fact do. It's trust in God's heart to save, to trust in God as, as the true deliverer. And he's saying uh, that as, as we trust in him that in that way, that there's going to be this voice that we hear, this is the way, walk in it. So there's a very important point that we have to catch here. For the sake of time, we're not really going to get into the idea of trust in the Old Testament because it would really just take us too long. But it's important to at least point out that trust is hearing, believing, and obeying God. According to the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew concept of trust, it's more than just hearing and believing. It's also obeying. So much like today, when Isaiah is writing his prophecy to the people of Israel, and he uses that word assure, he knows that there is a struggle about which way to live. Follow God's way? Follow God's vision for the good life? or follow one of the competing visions that exists in the world. That's always been the case 
just like it is today. And Isaiah knows this. But the scriptures play an important role in creating the vision of the only path to true flourishing. Ellen T. Cherry writes this in, in, in this great book, by the way, called God and the Art of Happiness. God and the Art of Happiness. She says, covenantal obedience is the rudder, the compass, the map, and the provision for one's voyage through life. And I think this is a really important point to make. Because it's very easy for us, it's so, we're so ingrained in 21st century Western culture to view commands negatively. View commands as oppressive. We read something in the scripture and God says, don't do this, do this. We look at that and we say, oh, God must is restricting my freedom. That's a very Western thing. But is it possible that God knows more than us? And is it possible that God is gracious towards us and actually loves us? Like it's promised thousands of times in the scriptures, like we just read. Isn't it true that God wants us to flourish? So if those things are true, isn't it possible that his commands are actually teaching us to avoid things that will harm us? And his commands are about guiding us towards a way of life that will cause us to thrive. That's what I would submit to you is the purpose of the commands in scripture is to glorify God and to lead you away from a way of life that will harm you and lead you towards the way of flourishing. And that is baked into the Sermon on the Mount. This is critically important to understanding obedience, covenantal obedience as the rudder or the guide for um, living the good life. So that complete idea of Assure is this. God wants us to fully trust him that his salvation is actually coming. And the way that we express our trust is through obedience to his commands, and his commands are not designed to be oppressive and restrictive. They're designed to lead us into flourishing. Okay, lots of recapping there, but it's important we get all of this because it's all in this sort of logical linear flow with Jesus. He's so deep. Okay, so when Jesus uses this, this word makarios, he's reminding us of the Old Testament promise from Psalms and Isaiah about that beautiful future that was promised about there. And then he's not only reminding us of it, but he's renewing that vision and saying that that promise is actually coming true in the present. That promise is actually coming true in the present, which is a hope to hang our hat on. We need to hope in the work and the activity of Jesus, of course. But then it even gets better than that. It gets better than that. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is also building upon that vision of flourishing. He's building on that vision of flourishing. He's going further than Psalms and Isaiah ever did. Now he's inaugurating the kingdom and being revealed as its true king. So there's new things that are beginning to happen as Jesus comes and announces the kingdom of God and begins to expound on the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount. He's building on that vision of flourishing that has always been in the story of God and he's taking it multiple steps further. So I love it. I love it. The things that God had promised through Isaiah and through the Psalms, Jesus is now saying those things are becoming more real. They're becoming more vivid. They're starting to break in through the cracks of the earth. And we're starting to see the presence of God in a new way. We're going to see the authority of God. We're going to see the presence of God in a new way. We're going to see God's reign come in a different way, in a new, more vivid, more real way than ever before. Because I'm here. That's essentially what's happening here. This is good, right? You guys are still with me? Awesome. Okay. So we need these perspectives. We need these perspectives because sometimes these references are a little bit outside of our culture. Like, for example, um, the other day I was watching some TV and I stumbled on a game of rugby, which I love that game, by the way. Rugby is such a hardcore, like I'm watching these guys like super fit, running for hours on end, tackling each other without any pads. It's just this incredible game. But I grew up watching American football. And it's like, rugby is a lot like American football, but it's enough different that when you're watching it, it's like kind of confusing. Like for example, I, was, I thought I was kind of getting the hang of how it worked and everything. And then um, these guys started celebrating and I thought they had just like turned it over and fumbled it or something like that. So what I'm getting to is that sometimes some of these references from scripture, we have a cultural way of reading them, but we need to go back to the actual culture and history of the Bible in order to understand what it's actually doing or what it's actually saying so that we can like have everything come into vivid focus. So in addition to um, that idea of makarios that we just finished talking about, remember also from last week, Jesus is playing up the Exodus story. He's holding up the Exodus story, meaning that he wants us to keep in mind of God's grace and heart to deliver. 
He wants us to keep in mind. He wants us to know that God is the deliverer. He's the one who sees our pain. He's the one who hears our cries. And he's the one who has the power to do something about it. And he will deliver us. So those two things, makarios and God's grace, they give us sort of the lens or the full picture to how to see the Beatitudes and how Jesus wants to actually re- wants us to read them. So um, this great book called Kingdom Ethics by a guy by the name of David Gushy. He's a good theologian. It's kind of a weird last name, but I promise don't judge him because the book is fantastic. He spells out wonderfully in his interpretation of the Beatitudes. He compares what he calls the high ideals interpretation of the Beatitudes with the grace-based prophetic interpretation of the Beatitudes. And this is what he has to say about it. Uh, Many have interpreted the Beatitudes idealistically. And they say that they are high ideals that Jesus is urging us to live up to. If we would only mourn, be pure in heart, be peacemakers, and so on, then we would be rewarded. We now know from long historical experience that with such a high ideals interpretation that it creates serious problems. It focuses our attention on our own earnest efforts to achieve these impossible ideals rather than on God's grace. It makes the gospel into a rather hopeless works righteousness, and it causes us feelings of guilt and resistance. So the more we emphasize these teachings as ideals, the guiltier we feel when we fail to meet the standard. Therefore, we end up ignoring or evading Jesus' teaching as impossible for any human to manage. After all, no one can live without ever getting angry. No wonder the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are so seldom taught, preached, or lived. That is so true and also very tragic. And I see it in myself, and I've seen it in the church as well for a long time. We say that we love Jesus' teaching. We say that we're all about it. We're like, yeah, Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, it's so cool, so beautiful, so awesome. But deep down, we're sort of scared of it. We're defeated by it. And we don't even really bother to try and live it anymore because we've given ourselves this high ideal view And we see the Beatitudes as ideals that we can't actually meet. The reality is is that God has something much, much better for us. And is that high ideal view actually how the scriptures are intended to be read in this case? In this case, in the Beatitudes, is that exactly what we're supposed to see here? Actually, um, David Gushy would say that it's not. He would say that he holds to the grace-based prophetic interpretation which he describes like this. This is really important. If I lost you, come back to me, because this is really key. The Beatitudes speak to disciples who are already being made participants in the presence of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. We already know at least a taste of the experience of mourning, mercy, peacemaking, and so on. And they do not promise distant well-being and success. They congratulate disciples because God is already acting to deliver them. They are based not on the perfect perfection of the disciples, but on the coming of God's grace, already experienced in Jesus, at least in mustard seed size. So did you guys catch that distinction? And it's an all-important one. This makes so much sense, especially because of the historical context of Jesus's like in-crowd, the crowd that had been uh, seated around him for this message. They had been suffering and had been experiencing suffering from all different sides. Side. So for, and and they, were, they were experiencing suffering because they were believing in the kingdom of God. They were trusting in Jesus' word and in his message. And so the persecution and the suffering was beginning to heat up. So you had people from Rome who were resisting Jesus. You had the Jewish leaders who were resisting Jesus and his message. But to those who would trust in him now, to those who would choose to believe in him now, to believe in the kingdom of God that's emerging on the earth. He's saying there's a reward coming. He's saying it's actually things are hard. I get that things are hard. Things actually might get harder before they get better. That's what Jesus is saying here. But he's congratulating them. He's congratulating them because he's saying you're fighting the right fight. You're You're on the right side of history here. 
So those who have eyes to see and are believing in the coming reign of God before everyone else has bowed their knee to King Jesus, before anyone else can see that he is the true king of kings, the wise, virtuous king that is going to reign forever and ever and take up the throne of God and renew all things under him and heaven and earth will be united together perfectly. Before, like the people who see that in advance, the people who see what God is saying and see the message of Jesus and they respond to that by bowing their knee to King Jesus, Yeah, there's going to be mourning. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be all kinds of suffering. But your reward is coming. Congratulations. Your reward is coming. The reign of God is coming. And therefore, your inheritance is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's saying your reward is coming. So that approach to reading the Beatitudes is new to many of us. But it's very, very biblical. And here's what I mean. Again, that Isaiah connection. We have to understand when Jesus is talking, he's often quoting other scriptures. And he's definitely doing that here. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. It's prophesying about Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Ah, that's interesting. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So as we read that, you can see all of the connections with Matthew chapter 5. In fact, this is a clear parallel with the Beatitudes, Isaiah chapter 61 and, and, and Matthew chapter 5. You could actually chart it out. There's many, if we were to keep reading, we would see verse by verse, line by line, Jesus is essentially mirroring or riffing off of uh, Isaiah chapter 61. He's basing his Beatitudes on that. And the message of Isaiah 61 is actually about the coming grace of God. It's about God's grace that's coming. He's not saying, hey, God is coming. Y'all better get your act together. That's not the message of Isaiah 61. He's saying to those who believe, God is coming to deliver us and cause us to flourish. He's making another promise. He says to those who are faithful, to those who believe, to those who trust in me, to those who are holding out hope for the coming reign of God, good news, congratulations, I'm coming to save you, deliver you, and cause you to flourish. So we have this prophetic approach to reading the Beatitudes and reading this whole sermon, a grace-filled prophetic approach. The reign of God is here and is breaking on. There's this idea that we see all throughout the pages of the Sermon on the Mount of anticipating. Jesus is saying, I'm inaugurating my kingdom here, but the fullness of my kingdom is still yet to come. And the people of Jesus are meant to be ones who anticipate his coming. So um, to give you an example of this idea, um, my family, uh, we recently moved to a new house. This is an incredible God story of how he just provided for us in this miraculous way. It's insane. So we moved into this great house, and um, there's the, the front room or the main room has two-story ceilings. And so it's like 15-foot ceilings. And I've got two kids. I've got a nine-year-old and then a three-year-old son. And uh, when, we, when, we, when we started moving our stuff in, our kids started asking us about the size of Christmas tree that we could fit in our new house. You know what I'm saying? You know what that's about, right? So Judah, my son, is all about, oh my gosh, the tree could be huge. It could be amazing. We moved from this house that had relatively small ceilings, and he's like, there's no limit to how tall this thing could be. And so he's just like really eager now. So like half the time when he wakes up, I get him up in the morning. We have this whole morning routine. And he's all, hey, Dad. Is it Christmas in this house yet? Is it Christmas in this house? Not yet, buddy. We still, it's like we got summertime. We've got your birthday. We've got like all kinds of things coming before Christmas. And, but like a couple times a week at least, he's all, Dad, is it Christmas in this house? Is it Christmas in this house? Not yet, buddy. Not yet. But the idea is that my son, he's just like, he just thinks about having the Christmas tree up and he's just eager for it. He just wants it. He's anticipating it. He can't get it out of his mind that one day there will be a massive Christmas tree in our house. And so there is this, there is, that's how we are supposed to be when it comes to the, to the reign of God, the kingdom of God. Pardon the childish analogy, but you get what I'm saying. That we are supposed to have that sort of childlike anticipation, expectation, hope in the reign of God. Jesus is saying, it's here, 
I am inaugurating the kingdom, meaning that the, the, the promised salvation from Isaiah is happening, is now, is real, but there will be a day when everything will be made right and I unite heaven and earth once again. It's beautiful, it's awesome. Now, I think it's really important before we close to notice a couple things. First of all, when we start thinking about the grace of God, again, in America, we're sort of trained to look at grace as a passive thing. But the 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived during the time of the Nazis in Germany and actually ended up being killed by the Nazis because he was all about rescuing Jews from, from the internment camps. Um, he, he had this to say. He talked a lot about this in his, in his theology books. He said that grace is not um, passive or disempowering. Grace is actually the opposite of that. It's calling us to action, and grace is actually empowering. So he talks about grace giving us the right standing before God so that we can participate with him in his victory. So grace is, is participatory. It's about jumping into the work of God in the world. And when we experience the grace of God, it calls us into action. Another way that he puts it is that the shape of grace is actually Christ being formed in you. So as grace begins to take hold in your life and as you experience and realize and appreciate the grace of God, what begins to happen is you begin to take on the form of Jesus um, and we get to participate in, in what he's doing. So this is rad. This is so good. Okay, um, that's all the full picture stuff, okay? Jesus is a true, wise, victorious king. Uh, he wants you to thrive. He's giving us a vision for the good life. There are all, all kinds of competing visions for, for, for the good life. There's that idea of makarios, the grace of God, prophetic interpretation. So then that leads us to what the Beatitudes actually are then. How do we see them? How do we read them? The Beatitudes are virtues, that Jesus say marks the disciples who are participating in the inbreaking kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are virtues that Jesus say marks the disciples who are participating in the inbreaking kingdom of heaven. So again, these are not high ideals for you to hit, but these are virtues you want to cultivate in your life. They're virtues you want to cultivate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea of the poor in spirit is that we have the humility to know that we need to surrender ourselves to God. It's recognizing that we don't have it in ourselves to save ourselves or to have any kind of a vision worth living into apart from him. So this is talking about the people who have the humility to know that I need to give myself to the Lord. This is another Isaiah connection, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2. Scholars think that Jesus is modifying this verse in, in Matthew 3 or Matthew 5. This is the one to whom I will look, to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. The idea there for those of you who are poor in spirit is that we are humble enough to admit our need for God. And Jesus is saying for those of you who are, congratulations. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations. You belong in the kingdom of heaven. You found a home you found a community. You found a family. You found an inheritance. You found eternal life. And you found all, all of this because you have this, this virtue in you. This recognition that you actually need him. Verse 4. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, notice the paradox. Notice the irony. Jesus is talking to a group of misfits, outsiders on the outskirts of Galilee, and they're facing the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders and all of that. And so they're humble, absolutely. But then he says, blessed are those who mourn. The virtue here is mourning in repentance, or mourning in repentance that, that's sincere enough to cause me to turn my life around, to turn my life towards Jesus. So mourning, not in just the, the sense of suffering, but mourning of repentance. So brokenness is a, is a part of our journey that leads us to the Lord, and that's what Jesus is pointing out here. We don't have to hide and pretend like we have it all together or pretend like our brokenness doesn't exist. We don't have to pretend like we are uh, fully righteous. We know that we're not. We ch can choose to face our brokenness, to mourn as a result of our brokenness, and to receive salvation through Jesus. So again, the reward here is that he's going to wipe away every tear from every face, and all death and mourning will end. That's another 
Isaiah connection. Isaiah chapter 28. It's repeated again in Revelation 21. When the new heaven and earth descends from the clouds. He says that exact thing. He wipes away tears from every face. Death and mourning will end. So beautiful. So your reward is you won't mourn forever. The Lord is taking that away from you and he's restoring to you joy. The last virtue for today, and this one will go fast. You guys have done awesome, by the way. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. This idea of meekness has been misconstrued in our culture to be weakness. And unfortunately, that's just not how we're supposed to see it at all. Meekness is actually another version of strength. The meek do not accommodate to the powerful and influential, but they surrender their will to God so completely that they will become their will will become God's will. They will, you know, delight in the will of God to the point where their will becomes God's will. Um, there's a scholar um, who I was reading this week who said that the meek become God's workhorses on earth. In other words, they are the ones who surrender their will, their desires to the Lord to the point where they're willing to do whatever God has them to do. And I think that's a lot of you. I think that I want that to be me. Of course, the prime example of this meekness is Jesus. Right, right before he goes to the cross, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's weeping because he doesn't want to go through the wrath that's coming, the cross that's coming. He doesn't want to experience it, but he says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. So we have Jesus, the uncreated creator of the universe, God in heaven who comes to earth, and he even expresses this virtue of meekness by submitting his will to the will of the Father. And he says, your reward? Congratulations to those of you who are that way. To those of, you, those of you who have cultivated and embody this virtue of meekness, congratulations. Yours is, you will inherit the earth. Jesus isn't kidding about that. Jesus doesn't do stuff like that. He's being serious. He says, you will inherit the earth. In the new creation, we will have authority over the earth. There's so much more that we could say about that, but the reality is that there is a reward for cultivating these virtues in our life. So, as we respond today, I just have a couple of things for your reflection. Jesus is the wise and true king. That's number one. Jesus is the wise and true king. Meaning, are you listening and obeying him? Are you trusting him that he actually has your best in mind? Are you saying yes to whatever God has for you? Are you truly submitted to him? In the West, we like to think of ourselves as the kings of our own little sovereign kingdoms. We like, like to be self-actuated and autonomous and all of that. But what Jesus is saying, what the scriptures are teaching, is that we actually submit to the true king. We Listen and obey what he has to say. His purpose is to give you a guide to flourishing. So again, we have to fight that sort of millennial 21st century buck against authority that we, most of us have. And to actually say, you know what? God's commands are not actually to restrict or oppress me or to restrict my freedoms. That's not what God's commands are about. He actually wants me to thrive and flourish, meaning the best life that I could live is to be in complete obedience to Jesus. The best possible life I could live is to obey him fully. He wants me, he wants to steer me away from things that will harm me, and he wants to steer me towards thriving. And then the, the next reflection for you to consider is to just embrace the paradox in the kingdom of God. This is something that's probably going to be every single week we're going to feel that paradox. We're going to feel that irony. What Jesus is saying is so upside down from the rest of what we hear in life in the world. And Jesus is forging this brand new community that's based off of his vision for the good life. So we need to learn to embrace that paradox. Okay, Jesus says that I'll have reward if I am poor in spirit, if I mourn in repentance to my brokenness, if I am meek and surrender my will to his, he's saying I'll inherit the earth. So we wanna cultivate those virtues in ourselves. And that's actually the, the next reflection, 
is how are you cultivating those virtues? How can you cultivate those virtues in your life in the week to come? Cultivate that, that virtue of being poor in spirit, mourning over your brokenness and meekness, giving the Lord everything. And then if that's you, the final reflection is just this. Congratulations. And not from me, actually from the Lord Jesus. He's saying good news. For those of you who prior to the rest of the world saying it will bow your knee to Jesus willingly and follow him as the true and wise king, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So we have a lot to celebrate as the people of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why we sing. So what we're going to do here in a minute is we're going to all stand to our feet and we're going to sing a few more songs before we head out of here today. We're going to take the bread and the cup as a celebration of what Jesus has done. We're going to reflect on the promise of God and we're going to celebrate this life that we have. Today has just been about getting a bunch of perspective on how do we actually live this thing out. And I hope, I hope, I hope that the Lord has spoken to you through it. And then the last thought is as we sing, we anticipate the reign of God. We anticipate the reign of God, like, like Judah in the morning. Is it Christmas in this house yet? Not quite, buddy. We anticipate the coming of God's reign. I want to close with um, a thought from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's this incredible 20th century um, reformed preacher and theologian. And this is what he has to say. He says, here is the life to which we've been called. I maintain again that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing could already have started. Amazing and astounding things would happen. The world would be shocked and men and women would be attracted to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that is our call, our prophetic call to cultivate these virtues and to begin living this sermon out so that we can see that great awakening to the gospel that we so long to see. Will you guys stand with me and let's pray. Jesus, we just want to say thank you for how uh, dense and amazing your, your word is. And especially this sermon, God, we're starting to get the fuller picture now. and We're so blessed by it. I just pray, forgive me, God, where I have neglected to internalize this teaching. Maybe it's because of that high ideal thing that I'm prone to. Sort of evading your teaching, evading your word because I just feel all sorts of guilt and shame when I can't meet it. But we know your heart for us. We know the teaching of the scripture. We just saw it with our own eyes. Your heart is that you want to give us your grace. You're longing to redeem us. You're longing to pull us into deeper friendship and all of that. And you're longing to give us a vision for the good life that's actually worth living into. And so God, we just pray now as we anticipate your reign, we anticipate the new creation. God, we just pray that you would be glorified in this room and in our hearts, but, but in the room too. I pray that as we sing that your, your presence would just inhabit these praises. And as we sing and celebrate, God, we just ask that you would be glorified. You are the true and wise king, the one that we can actually listen to and look up to. You are the one we fix our hope on, Jesus. We love you. And we pray all these things. And everybody said, amen. All right, let's sing.